Welcome to Season 6 of Business Book Talk. Every week, we have a business book author talk about their book and discover why they wrote it. The conversations are casual in tone, but we try and dig a bit deeper into the subject of the book and discover the author's background and their core ideas. I'm sure you'll like this week's book, so let's get started. Hey, everybody, it's Bob again, and I've got Supervision Matters, 100 bite-sized ideas to transform you and your team. And I've got Rita Sever here with me today, and I'm very curious about Supervision Matters because when I first read the title, I was saying, oh, my gosh, supervise, oh, it's all about control, but it's not. That's the fascinating thing. So, uh, Rita, let's define why did you call the book Supervision Matters. Well, I have a background in human resources, and when I was working internally in organizations, I saw the impact of the direct supervisor on the employees, and that impact was sometimes positive and unfortunately sometimes negative. So I really saw that supervision did matter. And when I started my business about 10 years ago, I read a study that said the number one reason people leave their jobs is because of their supervisor. And that really rang true for me. So I call both my business and my book Supervision Matters. Well, you know, I I think the problem that a lot of people have, managers, is that they they think they're helping, but they're just frustrating people. It's a real art form to communicate in a way that's helpful and yet not micromanage people. And the it's almost an intuitive sense. The people that are really good at it have this, you know, intuitive ability to do it. But with your book, you've kind of spelt it out for people so people can, you know, maybe sit back and look at the way they're doing things and then compare it to the, your systems and then say, okay, well, maybe I'm overdoing it in this section. Maybe I'm overdoing it in that section. Was that your goal with the book? Yes, I really wanted it to be user-friendly, and so the bite-sized tidbits to help people drop in when they have literally two minutes or three minutes and get an idea that they can then think about and, as you said, compare to how they approach their work, their staff, and see if they can just tweak it a little bit to be a little more user-friendly, as I like to say, helping supervisors be user-friendly to their staff. Um, Because you're right that sometimes supervisors, they're certainly well-intentioned, they want to get the work done, but they too often model on the supervisors they've had, which again, sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. And so helping them just look at a different way of the being a supervisor and also thinking about the role of supervision. Yeah, I mean, it's like the etiquette of being a supervisor. And a lot of people don't look at it that way. It's like, how do you step in and communicate with a person? Do you do it with a bunch of people in the same room? Do you do it during the meeting? Or do you kind of pop in their office after the meeting or maybe near the end of the day, at the beginning of the day, and and just have a nice heart-to-heart with the person and say, look, you know, I, I, I... I need you to be doing this. Why can't you do it? And how can we work together as a team to help you move forward instead of coming in and basically lording over somebody, making them feel embarrassed, making them feel small in front of people. And it's shocking. People still do it. I really think in many ways the basis of this supervision role is building a good, healthy relationship with the people you supervise, building it on respect and mutual goals and focus on the mission of the organization. And when you have that good foundation, then you can have those more difficult talks. And they're not as difficult when you're in relationship with someone. You can tell them what you need and what's working and what's not working. Now, you know, we talked a little little about this uh, earlier where we were talking about, like, how to attack the book. This is the type of book that you really don't need to read cover to cover. um, But is there a section that a person should read to get their head around um, the the whole approach and and strategy and then jump around? Um, Well, I think I tried to order them in a way that made sense to me that you're absolutely right. You can 
jump in anywhere and get some ideas, but starting with the introduction is a good way to get where I'm coming from and my view of how supervision matters, why it's so important. And then whatever uh, chapter grabs your interest, I think that's a good place to start. The chapters are built on the roles that a supervisor has, how you have meetings, how you relate to people, how you give expectations, how you're doing feedback, which is one that people often struggle with. Mm. Now, you know, even though this book's written for supervisors, I think it would be a great fit for some people I know in C-suite where they they really, they're, they're not managing properly and they're not supervising what they've delegated. Um, I think a major problem with a lot of managers is they'll delegate and then expect the person to self-manage themselves to, you know, 100%. And sure, you can let somebody self-manage themselves. That's great. And giving them, you know, the, the power to do stuff. But if you're not checking in with them, you're not getting reports or you're not reading their reports, then that's just a formula for disaster. Absolutely. There's a great middle ground between micromanaging and abandoning people. And that really is a sweet spot where people can thrive and do their best work. And having, for me, one of the keys to good supervision is having regular meetings. And even at the level you're talking about up in the C-suite, having monthly meetings to just make sure, are we moving forward? Are we still on the same page? Do we have the goals in mind? And as you said, are we making progress? I think that's so critical. Plus, it helps to build, continue to build that relationship that is so critical. Mm. Well, it's all about trust, and and uh, it also deals with anxiety. It it uh, deals with guilt, and uh, you know, a lot of like I myself, I'm I'm a relatively sensitive person, and I'll be pushing somebody, and then you know, for the rest of the day, say, like, "Geez, did I push them too hard?" And it messes up my day. I've I've got to learn to let go of that stuff. But if I had more meetings with that person, I could get uh, a reading of, is this person pissed off with me now? And so, yeah, I think it's really critical that you you have the opportunity to drop in or, or a telephone conversation or a text or something just to keep the conversation going. Absolutely. I really emphasize in the book the importance of regularly scheduled meetings so you both know they're going to happen. And you're right that sometimes those meetings are virtual. I work with a couple organizations that are completely virtual. So they're never in the same room together, or hardly ever, but they still take time to have regular meetings. And part of what happens with that is that the um, employee has a chance to talk. Too often, the supervisor is just focused on their message and they forget to listen. And that's such an important part, both to, again, build the relationship, but also to hear about problems that are coming up or um, deadlines or great ideas to improve an approach and even things that you may not want to hear about, but you better hear about, like harassment issues or something like that. So those regular meetings are critical. Yeah, and I think another thing too is if you're having regular meetings and you have a relatively open relationship and conversation in those meetings, there's no um, ridiculous reactions happening from you know the leader or even the different managers managers among themselves. You know, you get people sharing information that they regularly wouldn't share, and that's the information usually that is critical to all the other managers in the organizations to move forward without something blowing up in their face. Absolutely. Making sure every idea is out there so it doesn't surprise you later on. Now, what about different personalities? Because, you know, that there's um, people that are very outgoing. There's people that are very quiet and, and, and like to not talk as much. How do you manage in those type of scenarios? You Obviously, you have to understand that this person is an introvert or an extrovert, or on Monday, he's an introvert. By Wednesday, he's an extrovert. Um how critical is that to the management process? That is a very important part of it. There's a section in the book about um, really getting to know how people show up at work. And that's one of the ways they show up is how they are quiet or active or aggressive or whatever. And there's a section about intentional conversations 
so that you really do take just a few minutes. It doesn't have to be a lot of time, but to really take time to know how this person can do their best work. That's what it's all about. I talk about the relationship, but I'm not talking about being friends or hanging out. I'm talking about building a relationship so that you can help them do their best work. You can know how to help them do their best work. Because yes, if somebody is an introvert, you're going to have to adjust perhaps your style a little bit to not put them on the spot, not make them feel like they're a deer in the headlight, but still give them an opportunity to share their good ideas and their um, progress on a project. So that is critical. Yeah, for me, um, you know, when I'm dealing with extreme introverts, a lot of times what we'll do, we'll have the whole meeting and, uh, you know, they'll be taking notes or listening intently. And I trust that they're getting everything, but I always do a follow-up call for, for the introverts in the meeting and saying, hey, Joe, how'd it go? I'm wondering maybe later today we can talk about any ideas you had during the meeting and then I can share that with other people or if maybe you could do a small report or some some points about that you thought were relevant. It's giving them a task that enables them to communicate to the team the things that are relevant, but in their way and, you know, in a timely manner as far as they're concerned. Absolutely. Knowing how they process, how they think, how they show up. Um, I used to tell my managers when I was an HR director that I'm a ponderer. So I'm going to take time to think about whatever you ask me, unless you're breaking the law, then I'll tell you you can't do it. But otherwise, give me time to think about it, and then I'll get back to you within an hour, two hours, or at least 24 hours. want to make sure I consider all the ramifications. And that's worked great. So sometimes all the quiet people need is a heads up of, we're going to be talking about our marketing plan tomorrow. I want you to bring some ideas. And then they're ready to go. But if you put them on the spot, they may not pull it out right away. So that can be very helpful. Yeah, that's very good. I mean, like letting people know this is the agenda. And you kind of talk about how to do meetings in the book, too, is agendas must be agenda driven. And, you know, it's shocking. You know, I'm running meetings all the time and then I'll go into somebody else's meeting and they have no agenda. And we end up talking about hockey or, or, or stuff that has nothing to do. And it's a complete waste of everybody's time. Yeah. So five minutes talking about hockey might be fun and uh, helpful. But after that, it's let me get back to my work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you know what? People are in a lot of meetings and, and what I find happens is some days you're in meetings literally all day and then around three or four o'clock in the afternoon you get to start your day, which is completely unfair to the people trying to do their job. It's a, it's a crazy system when there are <laughs> days like that for sure. And yet some people have days like that all the time. I know that is how they do their work. Yep. Well, then, then it becomes very, very uh, difficult for them to be supervising their divisions, and then they have to have the right people in place that supervise for them. Do you think that's a good strategy? Yes, absolutely. Somebody has to be there um, to support the line staff, whether that's delegating to other managers, to lead staff, however you make it work. And again, having if you're not there, but you are the supervisor of record, then at least once a month checking in with people. But having somebody who is there that your people can go to so they know if I get stuck, if I have a question, this is what I do. So I don't just get stuck and not be able to complete my work. Most people, of course, have multiple projects, so they wouldn't get stopped for long. But it just helps people feel secure. Even if a question never comes up, they know what to do if I do need help. Mm. Well, that, that's when you get the phenomena of falling through the cracks where, oh, well, yeah, sorry, that project has moved forward for the last two weeks because we got stuck two weeks ago and nobody gave us an answer. So we got busy with other stuff. And uh, it, that, it's like a nightmare scenario because that might be a critical thing that you need done. But if you're not supervising, you don't know what's going on, then it's not really their fault. It's your fault as the manager. Exactly. You dropped it and you abandoned them. So really a, a delegation of responsibility to your team or, or to even a, a secondary manager um, that's not even in – well, maybe in your department but not really under your – purview, is that an acceptable way of doing it or will it frustrate the other managers? 
Well, a little of both, I think. It's certainly better than nothing that you, again, need someone who is the go-to person. But if that person is not part of the team and not necessarily up on all the details and the latest steps and the fine-tuned goal, then it could be very frustrating for the staff if they don't know who they are and they're just coming in and suddenly telling them what to do, that's going to be very confusing. So ideally it will be someone who is connected to the team. Like I said, perhaps a lead staff member who isn't officially a manager, but perhaps has more tenure, more experience so that people know, okay, if I get stuck, I can go to Shirley and she'll at least give me a hint of what to do. I think that can really help. Now, this is a tough one. You know, how, how do you deal with people that kind of like have the, the wrong attitude or a bad attitude? Yes, that is unfortunately one of the most common things that people struggle with. In fact, sometimes people can be great supervisors until they run into somebody with a bad attitude or some other problem and they don't know how to deal with it. And then suddenly they become the authoritative supervisor instead of the partner supervisor. So I do have a section in the book about how to deal with a bad attitude, but the short answer is that you address the behaviors. If you tell someone you've got a bad attitude, the only thing you're going to get is more of a bad attitude. So the task for you as a supervisor is to figure out what are they doing? What are they actually doing that I'm labeling a bad attitude, that I'm interpreting as a bad attitude? And that's what you give them the feedback on. Perhaps they're rolling their eyes every time you talk to them or muttering under their breath. That's what you talk to them about. And then you give them a direction to express their concerns in a different way so that they can learn how to be a better employee. And at what point in time do you have to give up on that person and escalate it? Basically... Um, once you've given the feedback in a clear way and you've given them a chance, you've, you're very sure that they understand what you're asking them to do, what you need from them, and you see no changes. So you give them a little time, and if you see no changes, then you probably need to move into discipline and perhaps even termination. So there's all of that is, there's a chapter called When It's Not Working. So that's another area that I do talk about. Well, do you, do you think uh, sometimes it's just that, that there, there's something that you did that's kind of eating away at them and they don't want to talk about it and they just can't get it out of their system? So by uh, transferring, well, maybe not transferring, but, but getting another manager from a different division to sit down and chat with them and saying, hey, look, you've been having a... Bob's asked me to come in because, uh, you know, you seem that you're pissed off with Bob. So I won't tell Bob what it is, but just tell me. And by you telling me, maybe it'll help us move forward. Or maybe you want to move to a different division in the company. What can we do to help you become a great employee? That's a great idea. That could be very effective if it is a personality conflict with their original manager then certainly that would be a way to do it if there are resources to help move that person through. I'd rather that the first supervisor developed a, the ability to be able to have that direct conversation with the employee and say, what's going on? This is what I'm seeing. It's not working. We've got to change this. But as, I, as we said, if you try that and nothing's moving, then you have to do something different. And it might be your solution is a great one to help them find a different path if that's available. And if not, then it might not be a good fit for them and they may need to find someplace else. Mm. Well, I think a lot of times it's people uh, put up with a, with a bad situation because they're they're just too terrified that if they lose that position, there is no other position. So it's kind of like a rock on a hard place. They'll they'll agree to it in the meeting uh, out of fear of losing their job, but still not understand fundamentally what they need to do uh, as an employee or as a person to get over that uh, hurdle. That's absolutely true. So it's really important that the supervisor have a clear idea of what success looks like for this task, for the job, for the employee. 
because too often the supervisor might give a vague direction. You need to shape up your attitude or step up the work. What does that mean? Some people will understand what it means, but many people will say, I don't know what you're asking me. And yet they won't say that because, as you said, they might lose their job if they say that. So the supervisor has the responsibility to be clear about what they need, exactly what that looks like. And then if the employee can't or won't do that, then that's another conversation. But being clear about what you need from them is is so important. And as everybody else, managers are so busy and so overwhelmed that Sometimes they do just talk in the shorthand and they don't even take the time because it's so scarce to think about what does this person need. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times it, it, you think you're being efficient, but actually what you're doing is you're just putting off something that's going to be a bigger problem in three weeks. Exactly. The, the regular meetings, again, are an investment in uh preventing problems. When you use that time proactively, it really does prevent problems later on. Now, um, trust is a very, very big thing. How do, how do you build a trust? And then how do you deal with your own inability to trust somebody to get the job done? Ah, that's a huge one. Yes. Um, I just read a study actually that said, one third of employees do not trust their supervisor, their boss, which is a pretty amazing statistic. That's pretty scary, actually. So trust is critical. And I think the long answer is everything in the book is about being trustworthy, building the relationship, being clear about what you need, giving feedback. Um, but trust really comes down to being um, present, saying what you mean, not contradicting yourself, and giving the person a way to be successful. So helping them, partnering with them, that can really help to build the trust. And on the other hand, when you have an employee that you don't trust, they've not followed through, they've broken their commitments, they haven't produced as you expected, it is important to address the bigger aspect of that. So you address the steps along the way. You missed this deadline. You didn't follow through when I told you to bring the report, whatever it is. But then you can also talk about all of this leads me to have concerns about your trustworthiness. And I want to work on how we can recommit to that. What do we need to take steps to make sure that we can commit to each other and to the work that we're doing. That's really what it's about. I have a section about making clear agreements that is relevant here, making sure that you um, agree to the same thing so that you can follow through with each other. I love the section where you talk about waiting, you know, and the importance of actually not doing something. And, and I'm, you know, I'm a pretty high energy guy and, and, and constantly doing stuff. And when I'm talking with people, the hardest thing for me to do is um, not jump in and answer their question for them or give them an idea of what their answer should be. And you get literally, I'm biting my tongue. Um, but I have to work on my body language because I'm sitting there tense, just holding back all my energy. So this person has a, a chance to, to get back to me. That's also sending a bad message. So how do people deal with waiting? What's, what's an act, you know, it's easy to say, oh, you just wait, but what are you going to do while you're waiting? That's a, a good question and, and hard for, harder for some people than for others. So for some people, it is much harder. And it, like you're saying, your body language might give that away. So I think the thing to do in that instance, if you're feeling that urgency is to name it, to say, you know, I've got some ideas I'd like to share with you, but I do want to hear your ideas first. And I think that'll calm your urgency a bit because you'll have identified what's going on for you. And it will also tell people, if you don't have ideas, I do, because they may be struggling just as hard to try to come up with something and they may go, oh, I'd love to hear your ideas. Or you may say, 
you know, I still need you to think about this or even give them some time. You know, I, I have some ideas, but why don't you think about this for a day and then we'll continue it or whatever. So name what's going on and then go from there. You know, going back into the book, you know, we, we've got all these wonderful sections. What do you think is the most important thing for for somebody to learn out of the book? If, if they only had one chapter that they could read because they're very tight for time, and I know that's a totally unfair question, but, you know, based on your experience and, and because it's it, this is kind of like having a meeting with a, a company, on average, where is a company failing most? Um, I think the, it is hard to, to pick one, definitely, um, picking one of your children almost. <laughs> but um, I think the chapter about being clear about your expectations, that's what I hear most often from both staff and supervisors, that people don't know what I want or I don't understand what my boss wants. He he or she talks in these generalities and I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing or I don't know what the top priorities are. Everything's a priority. So how can I pick what I'm supposed to do? So communicating your expectations clearly is a critical skill and will set up a lot of people for success just by doing that. And it will lead to the other steps that you need to do. Well, you know, it, it goes back again and again, just like having meetings, having regular communications with people uh, so they know what's going on. But it also, it, you, you know, implying that, you know, to be a great supervisor, you really have to know what you're doing. You have to have a plan. You have to have a vision for that um, thing that has to get done. You can imagine in your mind what it looks like when it's done. So you can deconstruct it. And then when you explain to people, you say, okay, well, I need to do this, this, and this. And then we're going to be going in the right direction. If you get stuck, let me know, but try that. But if they don't have a vision, if they don't have an end result, it's almost impossible for them to give direction because they don't know what they're giving direction for. Exactly. And for some employees, that will be task by task um, clarity. For other employees, it will be big picture clarity, depending on their the level of their job, their experience. So it doesn't have to always be first you put tab A into tab B. For some people it may be, but for other people it will be, this is where we're going, what the outcome is, and I want to help you get there. So let's talk through the steps and then I'll let you run with it. Do you think it's a bad idea to um, take managers that are really, really good at doing their job and put them into a, a position where they're doing less managing and more administration. Sure. Yes. The people who are great managers are golden and they can be exponentially more successful and effective when they can do what they're good at. So yes, let the people who can manage well manage and get them an exec assistant or somebody or partner who can help with the administrative work because you want people who know how to motivate people and how to support people doing the manager roles. Yeah, I mean, that, that's uh, project managers. A great project manager uh, can do five or 10 or 15 projects, but if he gets or she gets bogged down with having to do a bunch of reports, which they feel are inefficient, and why do I need to do these reports, then it's uh, counterproductive. Right, it can be. You know, they may be the only ones who can do the report, and then they may just have to do them. But if there's a way you can get a partner or, as I said, a support person to do that, that frees you up to do the work that you're great at. Mm -hmm. Now, when is it a good time to... Um, get a manager and, and get them to manage managers, like a supervising supervisors type of position? Because that's a that's a growth thing. There was a book called From From Bud to Boss, and that was about the transition of when you work with a crew and then you became their manager or their supervisor, and, and that was a, a mind shift. But there's another mind shift where you're going up in the organization and you're still kind of doing what you're doing, but you're doing with other supervisors. Is that a transitional uh, spot that's relatively tough for people to evolve into? I think it's less tough than the first one from bud to boss, as you 
said, because that is putting a whole different mindset on. But yes, when you shift from being a line staff manager to managing managers, there is a shift where you have to, again, focus on what are you helping them do? So where are they going and how can I help them get there? Not just what's the next project or what's the next task, but how can I help them develop their management skills and their people skills so they can be successful? Yeah. Well, this book would be golden for that situation, for sure. Um, do you think that um, people that are, are great managers have the ability to, to you know, innately communicate with people in, in subtle ways that people that aren't great managers just don't get? I think it's a little of both. I think it does come more naturally to some people, some people who are people people and are intuitive and can innately read body language of when they're pushing someone away. So for them, I think the role can come more easily. And for other people, it can definitely be learned. That's part of why in my book I include the coaching corners at the end of every section because I want people to take a few minutes to think about how does this topic apply to me? What do I do and do I want to change how I'm doing something? So I think I definitely think people can learn and I've seen it when I do trainings that people who have been managers for years but they suddenly say, I get it now. I see if I just do this, that would help me a lot or if I take time for those meetings, I get it now. Before it just felt like some one more thing on my checklist, but now I get how important it is. So people can definitely learn, and they can learn by watching the people who it comes more easily to also. It, you know, that's a perfect segue to one of my favorite questions is uh, aha moments. For you, your, your aha moment for this book, when you... Uh, you realize something that you'd been doing for years and were, you know, kind of got it, but then you got it in a fundamental way, basically just like what you were describing. Uh, for me, that moment was um, when I realized that I, I had been writing this book in some ways over 10 years because I had been doing monthly newsletters. And I had this idea of putting them into a book. And I realized that the book is very different. It's a different creature because with the newsletter, I could just pick a topic and go with it. But the book had to make sense. And for me, the real epiphany was when I realized I know how to write, but I don't know how to publish. And for me, getting someone to help me guide me through the publishing process was the critical step after realizing okay, I just can't just put a bunch of newsletters together. I've got to make sense of them. And that was actually a fun process to do that. Yeah, the editorial process with a good editor is magical. And, and I just cannot stress it enough that just because you've got a book's worth of material doesn't mean that it's a book. And, and you know, we get a lot of books here. And I would say, uh, you know, upwards to 30% of the books we get haven't ha hasn't had an editor to go through it. And it makes a tremendous difference in the readability of the book and if the book makes any sense. Yes, that was a, a big shift for me that really made a difference. Hmm. Um, let's talk a bit about uh, different styles of working with, you know, you've got teams and you work with, uh, you're working with your team. Do you always have the same style or do you have to learn to shift your style depending on the team? Um, a little of both again. I think if you fight too much against your style, you're going to be too self-conscious and uncomfortable. So you have to, a big chapter in the book is about knowing who you are, self-reflection, self-awareness. And that's really important to know how I do my best work. Given that, you do want to tweak it a little bit based on, as we spoke earlier, if you have a very quiet group, you're going to do a little bit different in terms of invitation and techniques than you would with a more extroverted group. And that would be true for individuals as well as teams. How do they work together as a team? How do they work as individuals? And how, how can I show up and bring out the best in all of that? So you're going to have your style, but you're going to maybe take different steps to ask for what you need based on who's in the room. 
Hmm. Interesting. Let's talk a little bit about self-reflection and, and the ability to uh, be mindful about yourself. Is that something you can do or do you need somebody there to reflect back to you? There is some level of self-reflection you can do on your own. And again, depending on your temperament and your um, comfort level with that, some people do that automatically and they can use the coaching questions after each section to make changes that they want to make and show up how they want to show up. For other people, they really benefit from working with a coach uh, who can help them learn how to be reflective and learn what to do with that reflection once they do it. So a coach can not only help you learn how to do that, but sometimes even more importantly, make you have an appointment with yourself to do that that people will go to an appointment with a coach where they wouldn't just sit in their office for an hour and reflect. So that sometimes can be the value of a coaching partner is it forces you to do what you want to do in terms of reflection and um, thoughtfulness and changing your behaviors. Do you think that uh, a lot of problems are created by people's misinterpretation of what you say? You say one thing and they think you're saying another thing or they say they think you're angry with them, but you're not? Yes, that is huge. Sometimes what it seems, what I've said is it seems like the words leave my brain and before they get out my mouth, they go down the block and around the corner and then they <laughs> go into the other person's ear. It just feels like sometimes people miss each other dramatically in that way. So that, again, is a critical reason to be connected with the person, to have conversations, to have those regular meetings so that you can check um, things like that. Like, uh, you know, it seems like we get off on the wrong foot with our meeting last week. Let's regroup and reconnect. Um, And sometimes, again, that's a time to get help from someone else, especially around feedback, because all of us tend to get a little defensive when we get feedback, and some people get very defensive. So I often suggest that supervisors, managers, try out giving the feedback to someone, a partner, a colleague, just to hear am I having too much tone in this? Because tone is often where we can pick up unspoken messages. So people, you need to practice giving feedback and directions in a neutral tone. So you're not coming across as, you need to do this. I'm so impatient with you. Instead of just, this is what I need from you next. Yeah, I, you know, I'm I'm going thinking about the book and and one of the sections I love is is the different traps and I am probably the worst for lecture traps I you know I, I once I get going my brain gets excited and lots of stuff comes in and and I just love telling people about it sometimes it's very useful and sometimes I can imagine them saying Jesus Bob get to the point right right that can some people just turn off if they especially if you're repeating yourself because you feel like they're not hearing you or they're not catching your excitement so you repeat it and yes people can say i've heard it i get it stop already but the thing is is as a good supervisor you have to catch yourself before they get to that point or when you walk in to have that conversation with a person you have to say bob don't lecture get to the point and then start the conversation. And that's a very, you know, being in the moment type of headspace, very hard to to do regularly, almost impossible to master. Um, How how do you think people can, or what can people do to be more in the moment to give better communication? Well, definitely um, prepping, even for a minute before you walk in the room, as you said, reminding yourself what you want to do, how you want to show up. I find it helpful to think about what are the top three takeaways of this conversation. If nothing else, what do I want to say to this person? And that helps me focus so that I don't get off track. So that can really help. Um, In terms of being present, you know, the tried and true method is to make sure you breathe. That's really so basic. It seems silly. And yet that is the secret to being present. So taking a deep breath, reminding yourself what the point of this conversation is, 
And then pausing, reminding yourself to pause and check in. Are they with you? Either literally say that or ask yourself, are they spacing out? Are they with me? That can really help. Sometimes I've coached um, managers who do tend to go on and on to actually bring a timer or set their watch or do something to remind themselves, okay, talk for two minutes, then stop and listen. And that can be effective. Yeah, that's that's quite funny because I've done that uh, specifically if I'm I'm uh, presenting to people like a big crowd and I'm supposed to be talking. I'm so bad that I have to put a five minute timer on a topic because I, I can go for 45 minutes on that topic. And then say, great, Bob, but you didn't really talk about what you came to talk about. Uh-huh, right. That's a great technique. Then. <laughs> <laughs> and I and the other thing, too, is I'm I'm honest about it. I tell people, you know, I get up there and say, hey, by the way. I love to talk. I have so much information that I want to give you guys, but I am going to limit myself to five minutes per topic, and I'm going to have the timer. If the timer goes off and I don't hear it, somebody stop me and get me on the next next topic. And they love that because then they're given permission to interrupt me, which is important. Right. And that would be a great thing to do as a manager also, especially if you know that's something you do, like you said, going into lecture mode, giving your staff permission to, you know, raise their hand and say, I think I've got it. Can we move on? Not in a disrespectful way, but if you give them, as you said, give them permission to rein you in if they need to. Yeah. And then thank them if they do it. So then everybody gets the comments and says, oh, okay, Bob didn't bite his head off. That's amazing. Right. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it's all, I think a lot of time is, is training and teaching expectation. Absolutely. That's so critical. And, that, you know, those agreements you make with your staff member like that can be so powerful. I teach people to help their staff push back. So staff wouldn't naturally feel comfortable in most circumstances saying, I got it, or I don't understand. What are you trying to tell me? And yet, if you give them permission for that, they will take you up on it most of the time, and then it will be a more fruitful relationship. One of the questions, pushback questions that I love to give to staff members is the ability to ask, is this negotiable? Because then the manager can either say, sure, you know, this deadline's pretty flexible or nope, this is a top priority. It's got to happen. Well, that definitely gives the type of guidance that the person needs. It's like, okay, I am going, these other projects that aren't top priority, they're going to get put to the side today because I have to focus on this thing today to get it done today. Right, exactly. What about dealing with failure? That's a... Excellent opportunity for a supervisor and manager to show what failure means to them. So hopefully they're able to say, you know, what did you learn from this? What can we do differently next time? How can we make it go better? And that can make it both a learning experience for both people, but also, as we spoke earlier, that can build trust. The employee can know okay, if I make a mistake, it's not going to be the end of the world. Uh, We can move through it, and that's going to make the partnership much stronger. Of course, there are times when failure is ultimate failure and big projects have fallen through because of failure, and then those important conversations may still be important, but there may be other consequences also. Yeah, but at least you're being upfront about it and, and just, you know, dude, you really, really messed up, but let's let's deal with it. Let's get over with there. You know, there will be some consequences. You know, you're not going to be getting your bonus this year because of X, but let's not dwell on it. Let's move forward and see if we can knock something out of the park and maybe you can get your bonus back. Right. You yes. Know, it, let's it, face it, forward together. That's a critical difference. Yep. And, and, and the, the fear of failure, I think, is one of the biggest problems organizations fail in, in, senior management and, and oh, well, basically anywhere. If, if a person feels guilty or they can't, uh, they can't get it out, they internalize, they don't get it out of their system, that's something that's going to make them less effective and it's going to give them a higher chance to fail in the future. Absolutely. And the other side effect might be that they don't let you know when they're failing 
because they're hoping against hope they're going to pull it out and be successful instead of letting you know ahead of time or as you're getting down to it, you know, I'm not feeling good about this. I need some help. So you want them to feel safe letting you know what's going on. Yeah. Well, that's that's the, the, the skill of building a team. Absolutely. And, and, you know, everybody feels that they're working really hard on their thing when they're in the when they're in the zone and being super efficient. But at the end of the day, that thing that they're doing is part of a bigger thing. And and the division might be creating something that's even for a bigger thing. So it it's very easy to get lost with the little details, but not realize that, yeah, well, you're, 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 you're focusing way too much on this little teeny tiny thing. When you look at the big picture, you're basically wasting time. Right. Yes. And again, making sure you're on the same page with what the ultimate outcome is or the goal or the team focus, not just on your list of tasks. How does somebody deal with a supervisor who is terrible at supervising? Can they go above that supervisor if all else has failed? Um, or you know, what is what is the options? Because you can talk to a supervisor that's lousy at supervising, and they're not going to get it. But at what point do you have to go um, over their head? Because if you're a great supervisor, you're going to realize that this guy is making me a bad supervisor because I'm not given the opportunity or the information to do what I'm great at. Right. So, yes, sometimes as a last resort, resort that is not only possible but necessary. Um, I think there are a lot of steps before that where you can ask your supervisor some of the other side of the questions. What are your expectations? What exactly are you asking me to do? How can we be successful together? But if you've done all that and, as you said, it's impacting your work, then go to HR, go to their boss, go, I would tell them that actually, which may be a problematic depending on their style, but I would let them know, you know, I'm feeling so frustrated. I need some help here and then go get help because hopefully there is somebody in the company and a process for doing that. That's really important. Yeah. The, the, you know, the only time that that something like that won't work is, is the guy has psychopathic tendencies. Right. <laughs> but then that's a, that's a whole new ball of wax. Yes, that, that's that, another ball game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, what should people do, you know, today to start, you know, becoming a better supervisor or, or, or taking on um, the role of a better supervisor other than buying this book? <laughs> right. That's a great idea. Um, I think, again, if you're not having regular meetings with people, do that regularly scheduled meetings so that both of you can count on them because that tells people you see them and you value them. And that goes a long way. Where should people go to learn more? You know, they've read the book or they're interested in the topic. Um, is there a blog or a website that they can go to? Yes, I have a website, supervisionmatters.com. I have a Facebook page, Supervision Matters, and I am on Twitter at Supervision Help. So any of those places you can connect with me or read what I'm up to lately. On my website, you can sign up for my monthly newsletter, which is uh, the same idea that's in the book, but it comes out most months. So that's another way to keep up with me. Do you think the concept of supervision, um, you know, it, it's been around for a long, long, long time, forever, basically. Um, has it changed fundamentally uh, because of technology and, and the way the, the modern world is? Or is it fundamentally the same thing? It's all about communication. Well, it is all about communication. That's true. Uh, whether that's, again, virtual or in person, however it's happening. Um I think the big shift is from an industrial style of supervision, which was authoritative and transactional, to a more interpersonal partnership model of supervision. That's really what I'm talking about. And in terms of technology, that can help with the partnership or it can get in the way. So that's where um, these tips to connect are really critical. 
that you don't let the technology be an excuse to not connect with people. Mm. Well, I find the hardest thing is like everybody likes to connect a different way. You know, some people like to send emails, some people like to send texts, some people like to phone. And really, as, as a communication specialist, I basically say, okay, if, if you want to be texting, I will text you everywhere. But then what happens the following week is like, oh, now they've become a telephone person. They prefer to talk on the phone. It, it's like just a little consistency would make life a lot easier. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Changing the rules makes it hard. Yeah, but that's human nature too. People get bored about doing the same thing. They feel that they're in a rut. Um, it's too repetitive. Oh, we've got our Monday meeting at seven and Joe's going to come up and he's going to have the agenda and it's basically the same thing every week. Oh boy. How can you improve uh, the ability for the people you're working with to be excited about the meetings or be excited about communication uh, because, you know, because they might not understand the importance of what communication is all about. Right. Um, well, I have two tips for that. One is to share um, the facilitation of those meetings. Even if it's a five minute stand up meeting on a Monday, you may have the same topics you cover, but have someone else, hold that facilitation so that it can be a little different every time they can bring their own style to it. Uh, the other thing I have a chapter in the book about playing at work. And I think taking one minute to do a quick, interesting question of the day, starting that meeting with everyone saying, what was your first car? Just wakes people up, gets them in the room and helps the rest of the meeting go so much better. So that's a tip that seems counterintuitive, but it really does save time. I love that because, it, you know, it, you, do, you get to do the small talk, but it's in a way that's going to get people warmed up to the meeting and, and uh, get them on track and, and make them present. That's an awesome, awesome idea. Absolutely. It's very powerful. We've been talking with Rita. Supervision matters. And boy, does it ever after chatting with her. 100 bite-sized ideas to transform you and your team. And trust me, folks, this book is a goldmine. Rita, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much, Bob. Thanks for listening to the show. And don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Like us at Facebook forward slash Business Book Talk. Follow the host on Twitter at Bob Garlic. Visit the website businessbooktalk.com for show notes and lots of other great interviews. See you next week.